Welcome to Spark, a podcast of the Selful Institute. I'm your host, Jennifer Bauer Lyons, the Executive Director. Today, we'll be speaking with Anand the Griot. At the intersection of spoken word, education, and hip hop culture, Anand is the author of Locked Up But Not Locked Down, a guide to surviving the American prison system, and poems for a barfly. He is the cipher master for Soul Food Cipher and pioneers his own original course at Pendulum Inc. Anand's latest musical endeavor, Alchemy, is available on all streaming platforms. Anand will be our opening act tomorrow night at Ignite, a night of spoken word, happening Thursday, October 19th at 7.30 p.m. at Gallery 992 in the West End. Anand the Griot, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Honored to be here. Excited about this conversation. Equally excited about what we're going to get into tomorrow night. Excellent. Well, let's start right off the bat with tomorrow night. So tell us what can we expect tomorrow night? You know, I love when things are thematic and they actually adhere to that theme. So this is going to ignite you. The title is Ignite and there's Ignite for a reason. We want to ignite your passion, we want to ignite your voice, but we also kind of want to just ignite the season. Fall is that beautiful time for self-reflection, for discovery, for just a little bit of wonderment as the leaves change and the world just looks better. So we're going to ignite that, but more than that, or even in addition to that, what we really want to do is ignite your voice and mm -hmm. your agent. So the purpose of this art that you are going to witness tomorrow is discoveries of self, uh, understandings of self, and just really valuing how important it is to be true and vulnerable with our words, with our experience, and to speak that truth to speak that power, to stand in front of those who are listening and who don't know that they're listening and speak our truth. Because of course, the reality is as an artist, even if you think you're doing it for yourself, you're sorely mistaken, or at least you're misrepresenting the problem. So we're gonna ignite ourselves and by that, that's awesome. So tell me a little bit about your journey. How how did you get into spoken word and into, into writing and into education? Just tell me how you got to today. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like a comedian. I need someone to have the clock so I know my time. <laughs> so let's try to make it uh, succinct but important and impactful. So I'm originally from Helena, Arkansas in the Mississippi Delta. And in the Mississippi Delta, you have a few things going on. You have the gospel and you have blues musically. And I was a church boy and we had the Saturday morning fish fry, which was the blues program every week. So I got to hear both of those. And in the funny, very um, almost stereotypical sense of uh, black kids being told to get up and dance when company came or aunts and uncles came, I got to do that for a few years until somebody realized that I couldn't sing. <laughs> and it happened to be around that time that um, a joke record by the title of Daha, by the rapping Duke, who I found out later on was a radio DJ and this was a joke record. But this song was the rapping Duke and had the lines, uh, while you were in diapers and wet in the sheets, I was at the Ponderosa rocking to the beat. This is, I don't date myself, but this is early on in hip hop. And it was interesting that my grandfather and I always watched Westerns. 
So once again, before I had a geopolitical understanding of the world, John Wayne was the coolest guy ever. And he had a movie called Big Jake and Big Jake's grandson, Little Jake, got kidnapped and Big Jake made sure that Little Jake got back. So the rapping Duke, coupled with my grandfather and I, just gave me a love of what I didn't know was hip hop and a love of what I didn't know was freestyling at that moment. So freestyled and from a very early age, I was a freestyler and it was probably somewhere in high school, maybe my senior year, where I had to do a poetry project and we were supposed to look at some of the the movements of poetry. So the transcendental poets, the wits and all of these. And I just found this very interesting connection between say the uh, wits who were been said to want to say something that had never been said before in a way that it hadn't been said before. And so some of the complex rhymes coming out of the East Coast and some of that LA underground in the mid 90s just sounded like that. And so I think inevitably the two merged in my mind. And so hip hop for me became more than just boom bap, just beat, more than bravado. I felt like there was a way that I could merge those lines. I didn't know that it existed, you know. Um, After high school, I was writing rhymes that were kind of like poems, that were kind of like rhymes. And then in another cliche sense, I saw Jones and Darius Love All and the blues in your left eye trying to do the funk in your right. And I was like, oh. And it has that cadence, that rhythm that's similar to Mm -hmm. hip hop, but it has that, that lyrical, visual nature of poetry. And I think that matching of it together spoke something to me because again hip hop can, if not done right, can have a kind of one-sided view, one-dimensional exploration of art. And sometimes poetry just sounds like laments and oh do you love me? But the smashing of those together mm-hmm. um, did a lot. And then that kind of ran concurrent with my stepfather throwing a cassette tape of the best of Gil Scott Heron on my bed and saying, since you like rap, listen to this. He's the one that started it. Mind you, he still doesn't like it. Doesn't care anything about it. <laughs> Listen to that tape for about two weeks. You know, saying cassette tape for about two weeks. And he comes by later on and he says, So, where my tape at? And I said, Your tape? I thought you gave that to me. And so I kept the tape. So, putting all of that together, having, having that, then Gil Scott Heron and having uh, Love Jones and things of that nature. Excellent. And, Fabulous. So talk to me about how you got involved with Soul Food Cipher here in Atlanta. Talk to me about that journey. I got involved in that journey by running away as many times as I could. <laughs> so um, so I am a very proud graduate of Morehouse College. Um, mm-hmm. And while I was on Morehouse's campus, we had an a open mic event called Underground Live. I was able to perform for two years and then I hosted it for two years. Fun fact, it was when uh, Sean King was president of the SGA and he expanded the Hip Hop Collective and we got more institutional support and more room at Kilgore Hall to perform. But when I wasn't doing that, I was freestyling on the strip and battling anybody. And I mean battling anybody in the true essence of the nitty gritty of what hip hop is. And the thing is, I'm from Arkansas, but I went to high school in New Mexico. I am from nowhere that's supposed to really know how to rap as well as I did and do. Um, And so a lot of people wanted to challenge me. 
and, and I promise you there's a reason behind it. <laughs> one, of, uh, one of my uh, lifelong brothers, Joe Stu, who was a member of Soul Food Society, was a freshman at CAU while I was a freshman at Morehouse. Mm-hmm. And he'll tell the story of having a friend who came to one of the open air outdoor ciphers and decided to challenge me. Say to him, I don't think that'd be a good idea. And so in, in my veracity, <laughs> being voracious as I was as a battler, apparently he left without a friend that day. And Joe Stu and I have been like brothers ever since. So Joe Stu actually got um, connected with the cipher before I did. And he told me about it, and I said, sure. And then he kept telling me month after month, like, no, you got to come to Cypher. Like, why? I feel like battling anybody. I'm not that angsty anymore. I'm not upset about the world. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Life is pretty good right now. He's like, it's not that. You got to see it. You got to see it. And so I broke down one November. I believe it might have been 2017. I broke down in November, and I went to the year-end Cypher. And it was amazing. All of the elements of what I'd grown up on and the way that we approached hip hop and freestyle was there. You know, everybody genuinely liked each other. And the crowd liked each other. And then there were all of these different kinds of rounds. I like to consider it like the real rap Olympics, you know. Mm-hmm. Joe and I paired up, did some partner exercises. And mind you, this is all freestyle. All off the top of the dome, nothing mm-hmm. pre-scripted, pre-thought about or anything. It's living in that moment. And I've been hooked since then. And I think I went back after the first time just to see whether the first time was a fluke or whether right. you know, the nostalgia of the moment made me feel something about it. And with every growing moment, I realized how much I love the cypher. And then Alex, as well as the other founders and the board members, have these visionary ideas that are similar to things that I've felt for quite a while. And being in education for 14 years now, um, some of the outreach they've done with the Condensing School and working with the MCs to be instructors, and then some of the installations that we would do with organizations coming into town or organizations in town. And it's just so much great to do with the passion that I had as a little kid that people told me wouldn't get me anywhere and that when the shiny suit era of Puffy came along and they said, that's not going to make you any money because you got to make songs. All of the odds said that this would have been a waste of my time. And maybe if I looked at it from that lens, quite possibly. But looking at it as we do in Soul Food Cypher, being mm-hmm. able to change communities and the lives of DMCs, it truly is the case. So once once I was bitten by that bug, you know, I mean, what else am I going to do? What else am I going to do with myself? I have to do that. Yeah, life change. It's a life changing experience to to witness and be a part of one of those ciphers. It is truly life changing. Um, so, talk to me a little bit about how you started um, writing and became an author. So, you've written two books. Like, talk about that process. So, you know, life is beautiful, and I I think being a freestyle MC has taken over so much of my life without me even knowing it, because sometimes you do things without knowing you're doing the things. So um, be, to be very vulnerable and forthright, um, because of a asinine decision, I found myself in Douglas County Jail for a little bit of time. 
Fortunately, it wasn't a long stretch and I don't have one of those dynamic stories to tell you about 10 years in redemption, thank heavens. Um, but it was, uh, it was, I mean, it's laughable at this point that it was something to be prosecuted, but the law is indeed the law. Um, and while I was sitting there, I just noticed the difference in the environment and what I'd expected. So I just started jotting down things almost for my amusement. Mm -hmm. And when uh, when I when I when I when I got out, and I say this is a shorter, relatively short amount of time. When I got out, uh, my good Morehouse brother and publisher, Dr. Supreme Understanding, who was the founder of Supreme Design Publishing, mm -hmm. called me over to do some editing on the book he was working on, how to how to hustle a million, which is still a life changer. And you know, we were working on that, and I was telling him about the experience and told him when I jotted some things down. And what was going to be a first time as guide for doing time became locked up and not locked down a guide prison system. Um, I was fortunate and unfortunate to spend just a little bit of time. But while I was in there, I realized Morehouse grad with deep in family, common sense, not a criminal record, not a criminal background, and not criminal intention. And this is where I was sitting for a moment. And I just thought about how many others may have found themselves in that predicament. So my ego and my pride says, shut up. But spirit speaks. And spirit says that we don't go through experiences if we can't share those experiences. We relive them in our spirit if we don't share those for others. And more than anything, I wanted it to be a cautionary tale that a parent could share with their teenage child. But also so that a parent could understand dealing with their adult child, because there are so many interwoven realities about the prison industrial complex and the school to prison pipeline. And so we wanted, as we started working and got, got together, we wanted to create something that would be more comprehensive than you can imagine. And the results is a 474-page book with my co-author, Atomic uh, 7, pardon me, and um, Probably way too much for the regular person. It was released in 2011, but I still hear from other people who have friends who have been incarcerated or have family members who are currently incarcerated and they speak well of the book. I am on the list of banned books <laughs> in the various states of the United States. And that sounds like one thing, but then when you realize that I'm on there with, uh, Zoya Hurstein, that I'm on there with Alex mm -hmm. Walker. I'm on there with these real thought agents. So I didn't, I knew I would be an author at some point in time. I've been writing all of my life plays, short stories, poems. Um, but that was my first professional foray. And it was a labor of love that had to happen. Poems for Barfly is just a collection of poems. And there is a particular book that it came out of one of my journals that I wrote in, and this was years ago while waiting tables. And at this time I was waiting tables at the great. I was actually bargaining at the great. If you're not at all, you may. So the great and a wine bar. Um, there was one in the park that Usher co-owned, but then there were a few others. So there was one in Phipps Plaza and I worked there and, you know, very delicate, small, light fare, great cheeses and the full expanse of wine. And one day I had my journal, my notebook out on the bar 
and I'm running around doing things. And one of the patrons, a fairly nice young lady, picked it up. And she was there for quite a while, sipping wine and reading all through the journal and wow. just had questions about the poems. And so from that moment, it was poems for a barfly. Um, and that, that was a few years back. And then I just decided to compile those and release those independently myself. Because I said, well, if somebody's sitting at the bar, mm -hmm. period other things to do can actually, and would actually want to sit here and read through all of this, then it's worth publishing. And I think, you know, my journey as an author and as an artist revolves around that idea of facing fear and then just shrugging it off. Because how do you know that you're going to end up being a part of a 474-page book? How do you know that it's going to be well-received? How do you know that it's going to be so impactful that others would like to keep others from reading it? How do you know that someone's going to pick up a book of yours that isn't even a book at this point and wade through your insane handwriting to get to these messages, these ideas. I think as artists, but I think also as people, we give ourselves too little credit, way too much criticism. And yes. one, one of my most, uh, one of my favorite podcasts, it's either the Happiness Lab or No Stupid Questions. I can't remember which one this was on, but it just suggested that as humans, we undervalue how much people like us. Yes. And I think, and I think that's connected to all of our missions. Music, our art, friends, you know, we ask ourselves, it seems like we've done nothing. But if you look at the job you've done and then go to LinkedIn and look at the job posting that's for the job that you've done, the four things that you said turns into this expansive link. Mm -hmm. way with life. So, with art, with life, with self, we're doing so much that we don't give ourselves credit for. So, I'm happy to be now releasing music and books and poetry and being able to be a part of Soul Food Cycle, being able to ignite on Thursday for all of those reasons because somebody's listening and inevitably when I feed myself, I'm able to feed others. Anand, your vulnerability and courage is really inspirational. <laughs> like it is just, it is just a true inspiration. And I am so excited to have our audiences meet you tomorrow night. Um, I always like to ask our podcast guests what words of wisdom that they want to share with the audience. You've shared so many pieces of wisdom already, but I'm going to ask you that one question. If you have any words of wisdom that you want to share with the audience, it can be on any topic, um, but what what would you like our audience to walk away with? I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to frame it in a piece that I will not be performing on Thursday, but it's one of my oldie, oldies but goodies. I absolutely love it. And it's a piece entitled Oxygen Mask. And I just want, the chorus says it all. And the lesson is at the very end, but it says, imagine we were on a plane in turbulence and rain. And we locked down trade tables as the pilot explained that we called a headwind. Now we're in a tailspin. And he strongly recommends that we recall that thing that the flight attendant told us precisely when she showed us how to deal with losing pressure and how we really shouldn't go nuts. And before the lesser, you must first do for self. Love is like an oxygen mask. You first before anyone else. And that line, you first before anyone else, 
I think is applicable to those of us who are healers, those of us who work in positions, working with the underprivileged, the underrepresented, the forgotten, those of us who do things that people don't value, but honestly, those of us who do things that people do value. Love is like an oxygen mask. You first before anyone else. And if you are not pouring into your board, into your bucket, you have nothing to pour for anyone else. And if you do have something to pour for anyone else, you're not left with anything for yourself. It is not selfish. Self-preservation is the first law of nature. And if, if you find yourself thinking that you're selfish, I want you to think about it like this. The narcissists and the psychopaths and the manipulators of the world don't think about that. So if you find yourself questioning whether or not this self-love, this self-care is somewhat selfish, it means that it's not because the people who step over others without any concern, with discontent, with malintent, they do it at the blink of an eye, at the drop of a hat. So it is okay for you to take care of yourself. In fact, it is absolutely imperative that you take care of yourself. You first, anyone else. Well, that is a great lesson for us to learn. Thank you so much for joining us for our podcast today. And we look forward to seeing you tomorrow night. I am so excited. Thank you for having me here. Beautiful people, tell a friend to tell a friend that the flame is not dormant. They can come out tomorrow night, 730, Gallery 992 in the historic and wonderful West End, and they can ignite themselves. Excellent. Thank you so much for listening. In the meantime, you can keep up with us on Instagram at South Fulton Institute or visit our website at www.southfultoninstitute.org. We would like to thank our sponsors, the Community Foundation of Greater Atlanta Metropolitan Atlanta Arts Fund, the City of Atlanta Office of Cultural Affairs, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Fulton County Arts and Culture, and Georgia Council for the Arts.